Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratam Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens, 1853, read to you by Pratam Data. Chapter 1 Ancient England and the Romans If you look at a map of the world, you will say, in the left-hand upper corner of the Eastern Hemisphere, two islands lying in the sea. They are England and Scotland and Ireland. England and Scotland form the greater part of these islands. Ireland is the next in size. The little neighbouring islands which are so small upon the map as to be mere dots, are chiefly little bits of Scotland, broken off, I dare say, in the course of a great length of time by the power of the restless water. In the old days, a long, long while ago, before our Saviour was born on earth and lay asleep in a manger, These islands were in the same place, and the stormy sea rolled round them, just as it rose now. But the sea was not alive then, with great ships and brave sailors sailing to and from all parts of the world. It was very lonely. The islands lay solitary in the great expanse of water. The foaming waves dashed against their cliffs, and the bleak winds blew over their forests, but the winds and the waves brought no adventurers to land upon the islands, and the savage islanders knew nothing of the rest of the world, and the rest of the world knew nothing of them. It is supposed that the Phoenicians, who were an ancient people, famous for carrying on trade, came in ships to these islands and found that they produced tin and lead, both very useful things, as you know, and both produced to this very hour upon the sea coast. The most celebrated tin mines in Cornwall are still close to the sea. One of them, which I have seen, is so close to it that it is hollowed out underneath the ocean, and the miners say that in stormy weather, when they are at work down in the deep place, they can hear the noise of the waves thundering above their heads. So, the Phoenicians, coasting about the islands, would come, without much difficulty, to where the tin and lead were. The Phoenicians traded with the islanders for these metals and gave the islanders some other useful things in exchange. The islanders were at first poor savages, curling almost naked or only dressed in the rough skins of beasts and staining their bodies as other savages do with coloured earths and the juices of plants. But the Phoenicians sailing over to the opposite coasts of France and Belgium, and saying to the people there, We have been brought to those white cliffs across the water, which you can see in fine weather, and from that country, which is called Britain.
we bring this tin and lead. Tempted some of the French and Belgians to come over also. These people settled themselves on the south coast of England, which is now called Kent, and although they were a rough people too, they taught the savage Britons some useful arts and improved that part of the island. It is probable that other people came over from Spain to Ireland and settled there. Thus, by little and little, strangers became mixed with the islanders, and the savage Britons grew into a wild, bold people, almost savage still, especially in the interior of the country, away from the sea where the foreign settlers seldom went, but hardly brave and strong. The whole country was covered with forests and swamps. The greater part of it was very misty and cold. There were no roads, no bridges, no streets, no houses that you would think deserving of the name. A town was nothing but a collection of straw-covered huts, hidden in a thick wood with a ditch all around with a low wall made of mud or the trunks of trees placed one upon another. The people planted little or no corn, but lived upon the flesh of their flocks and cattle. They made no coins, but used metal rings for money. They were clever in basket work, as savage people often are, and they could make a coarse kind of cloth, and some very bad earthenware. But in building fortresses, they were very much more clever. They made boats of basket work, covered with the skins of animals, but seldom, if ever, ventured far from the shore. They made swords, of copper mixed with tin, but these swords were of an awkward shape, and so soft that a heavy blow would bend one. They made light shields, short-pointed daggers and spears, which they jerked back after they had thrown them at an enemy by a long strip of leather fastened to the stem. The butt-end was a rattle to frighten an enemy's horse, the ancient Britons, being divided into as many as thirty or forty tribes, each commanded by its own little king, were constantly fighting with one another, as savage people usually do, and they always fought with these weapons. They were very fond of horses. The standard of Kent was the picture of a white horse. They could break them in and manage them wonderfully well. Indeed, the horses, of which they had an abundance, although they were rather small, were so well taught in those days they, that they can scarcely be said to have improved since, though the men are so much wiser. They understood and obeyed every word of command and would stand still by themselves in all the din and noise of battle while their masters went to fight on foot. The Britons could not have succeeded in their most remarkable art without the aid of these sensible and trusted animals. The art, I mean, is the construction and management of war chariots or cars 
for which they have been celebrated in history. Each of the best sort of these chariots, not quite breast high in front and open at the back, contained one man to drive and two or three others to fight all standing up. The horses who drew them were so well trained that they would tear at full gallop over the most stony ways and even through the woods, dashing down their master's enemies beneath their hoofs and cutting them to pieces with the blades of swords or skites, which were fastened to the wheels and stretched out beyond the car on each side. For that cruel purpose, in a moment, while at full speed, the horses would stop at the driver's command. The men within would leap out, deal blows about them with their swords like hail, leap on the horses, on the pole, spring back into the chariots anyhow, and as soon as they were safe, the horses tore away again. The Britons had a strange and terrible religion, called the religion of the Druids. It seems to have been brought over in very early times indeed from the opposite country of France, anciently called Gaul, and to have been mixed up with the worship of the serpent and of the sun and moon with the worship of some of the heathen gods and goddesses. Most of its ceremonies were kept secret by the priests, the druids, who pretended to be enchanters and who carried magicians' wands and wore each of them about his neck. What he told the ignorant people was a serpent's egg in a golden case. But it is certain that the trudical ceremonies included the sacrifice of human victims, the torture of some suspected criminals, and on particular occasions even the burning alive in an immense wicker cage of a number of men and animals together. The druid priests had some kind of veneration for the oak and for the mistletoe, the same plant that we hang up in houses at Christmas time now when its white berries grew upon the oak. They met together in dark woods, which they called sacred groves, and there they instructed in their mysterious hearts young men who came to them as pupils, and who sometimes stayed with them as long as twenty years. These druids built great temples and altars open to the sky, fragments of some of which which are still remaining. Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire is the most extraordinary of these. Three curious stones called Kitts Cote House on Blue Hill Hill near Maidstone in Kent form another. We know from examination of the great blocks of which such buildings are made, that they could not have been raised without the aid of some ingenious machines, which are common now, but which the ancient Britons certainly did not use in making their own uncomfortable houses. I should not wonder if the Druids and their pupils who stayed with them 20 years, knowing more than the rest of the Britons, kept the people out of sight while they made these buildings and then pretended that they were built by magic. Perhaps 
they had a hand in the fortresses too. At all events, as they were very powerful and very much believed in. And as they made and executed the laws and paid no taxes, I don't wonder that they liked their trade. And as they persuaded the people, the more druids there were, the better of the people would be, I don't wonder that there were a good many of them. But it is pleasant to think that there are no druids now who go on in that way and pretend to carry enchanters wands and serpents eggs and of course there is nothing of the kind anywhere. Such was the improved condition of the ancient Britons 55 years before the birth of our Saviour when the Romans, under the great general Julius Caesar, were masters of all the rest of the known world. Julius Caesar had then just conquered Gaul, and hearing in Gaul a good deal about the opposite island with the white cliffs, and about the bravery of the Britons who inhabited it, some of whom had been fetched over to help the Gauls in the war against him, he resolved, as he was so near, to come and conquer Britain next. So, Julius Caesar came sailing over to this island of ours, with 80 vessels and 12,000 men. And he came from the French coast between Calais and Boulogne, because thence was the shortest passage into Britain. Just for the same reason as our steamboats now take the same track every day. He expected to conquer Britain easily, but it was not such easy work as he supposed, for the bold Britons fought most bravely and what with not having his horse soldiers with him, for they had been driven back by a storm, and what with having some of the vessel, vessels dashed to pieces by a high tide after they were drawn ashore, he ran great risk of being totally defeated. However, for once that the bold Britons beat him, he beat them twice, though not so soundly, but that he was very glad to accept their proposals of peace and go away. But in the spring of the next year, he came back. This time, with, with 800 vessels and 30,000 men. The British tribes chose as their general-in-chief of Britain, whom the Romans in their Latin language called Cassivellanus, but whose British name is supposed to have been Caswallen. A brave general he was, and well he and his soldiers fought the Roman army. So well, that whenever in that war the Roman soldiers saw a great cloud of dust and heard the rattle of the rapid British chariots, they trembled in their hearts. Besides a number of smaller battles, there was a battle fought near Canterbury in Kent, there was a battle fought near Chertsey in Surrey, there was a battle fought near the marshy little town in a wood, the capital of that part of Britain which belonged to Cassivellanus, and which was probably
probably near what is now St. Albans in Hertfordshire. However, brave Cassivellaunus had the worst of it on the whole, though he and his men always fought like lions. As the other British chiefs were jealous of him and were always quarrelling with him and with one another, he gave up and proposed peace. Julius Caesar was very glad to grant peace easily and to go away again with all his remaining ships and men. He had expected to find pearls in Britain, and he may have found a few for anything I know, but at all events he found delicious oysters, and I am sure he found tough Britons of whom, I dare say, he made the same complaint as Napoleon Bonaparte, the great French general, did 1800 years afterwards, when he said they were such unreasonable fellows that they never knew when they were beaten. They never did know, I believe, and never will. Nearly a hundred years passed on, and all that time there was peace in Britain. The Britons improved their towns and mode of life, became more civilised, travelled and learned a great deal from the Gauls and Romans. At last, the Roman Emperor Claudius sent Aulus Plautius, a skilful general with a mighty force, to subdue the island and shortly afterwards arrived himself. They did little, and Austerius Scapula, another general, came. Some of the British chiefs and tribes submitted, others resolved to fight to the death. Of these brave men, the bravest was Cracticus, or Caradoc, who gave battle to the Romans with his army among the mountains of North Wales. This day, said he to his soldiers, decides the fate of Britain, your liberty or your eternal slavery, date from this hour. Remember your brave ancestors who drove the great Caesar himself across the sea. On hearing these words, his men, with a great shout, rushed upon the Romans, but the strong Roman swords and armour were too much for the weaker British weapons in close conflict. The Britons lost the day. The wife and daughter of the brave Caractacus were taken prisoners. His brothers delivered themselves up. He himself was betrayed by the hands of the Romans by his false and base stepmother, and they carried him and all his family in triumph to Rome. But a great man will be great in misfortune, great in prison, great in chains. His noble air and dignified endurance of distress so touched the Roman people who thronged the streets to see him that he and his family were restored to freedom. No one knows whether his great heart broke and he died in Rome or whether he ever returned to his own dear country. English oaks have grown up from acorns and withered away and they were hundreds of years old, and other oaks have sprung up in their place and died too, very aged. 
since the rest of the history of the brave Caractacus was forgotten. Still, the Britons would not yield. They rose again and again and died by thousands, sword in hand. They rose on every possible occasion. Suetonius, another Roman general, came and stormed the island of Anglesey, then called Mona, which was supposed to be sacred, and he burned the Druids in their own wicker cages by their own fires. But, even while he was in Britain with his victorious troops, the Britons rose. Because Boadicea, a British queen, the widow of the king of the Norfolk and Suffolk people, resisted the plundering of her property by the Romans who were settled in England. She was couched by order of Catus, a Roman officer, and her two daughters were shamefully insulted in her presence and her husband's relations were made slaves. To avenge this injury, the Britons rose with all their might and rage. They drove Catus into Gaul, they laid the Roman possessions waste, they forced the Romans out of London, then a poor little town, but a trading place. They hanged, burned, crucified and slew by the sword, 70,000 Romans in a few days. Suetonius strengthened his army and advanced to give them battle. They strengthened their army and desperately attacked his on the field where it was strongly posted. Before the first charge of the Britons were made, Boudicia in a war chariot with her fair hair streaming in the wind and her injured daughters lying at her feet, drove among the troops and cried to them for vengeance on the oppressors, the licentious Romans. The Britons fought to the last, but they were vanquished with great slaughter and the unhappy queen took poison. Still, the spirit of the Britons were not broken. When Suetonius left the country, they fell upon his troops and retook the island of Anglesey. Agricola came, 15 or 20 years afterwards, and retook it once more, and devoted seven years to subduing the country, especially that part of it which is now called Scotland. But its people, the Caledonians, resisted him at every inch of crowns. They fought the bloodiest battles with him and killed their very wives and children to prevent his making prisoners of them. They fell fighting in such great numbers that certain hills in Scotland are yet supposed to be vast heaps of stones piled up above their graves. Hadrian came, thirty years afterwards, and still they resisted him. Severus came, nearly a hundred years afterwards, and they warred his great army like dogs and rejoiced to see them die by thousands in the bogs and swamps. Caracalla, the son and successor of Severus, did the most to conquer them for a time, but not by force of arms. He knew how little that would do. He yielded up a quantity of land to the Caledonians 
and gave the Britons the same privileges as the Romans possess. There was peace after this for 70 years. Then new enemies arose. There were the Saxons, a fierce seafaring people from the countries in the north of the Rhine, the great river of Germany on the banks of which the best grapes grow to make the German wine. They began to come in pirate ships to the seacoast of Gaul and Britain and to plunder them. They were repulsed by Carausius, a native either of Belgium or Britain, who was appointed by the Romans to be the command, and under whom Britons would first begin to fight upon the sea. But after this time, they renewed their ravages. A few years more, and the Scots, which was then the name for the people of Ireland, and the Picts, a northern people, began to make frequent plundering incursions into the south of Britain. All these attacks were repeated at intervals during 200 years and through a long succession of Roman emperors and chiefs, during all which length of time the Britons rose against the Romans over and over again. At last, in the days of the Roman Honorius, when the Roman power all over the world was fast declining, and when Rome wanted all her soldiers at home, the Romans abandoned all hope of conquering Britain and went away. And still at last, as at first, the Britons rose against them in their old brave manner, for a very little while before they had turned away the Roman magistrates and declared themselves an independent people. 500 years had passed since Julius Caesar's first invasion of the island, when the Romans departed from it forever. In the course of that time, although they had been the cause of terrible fighting and bloodshed, they had done much to improve the conditions of the Britons. They had made great military roads, they had built forts, they had taught them how to dress and arm themselves much better than they had ever known how to do before. They refined the whole British way of living. Agricola had built a great wall of earth, more than 70 miles long, extending from Newcastle to beyond Carlisle, for the purpose of keeping out the Picts and Scots. Hadrian had strengthened it. Severus, finding it much in want of repair, built it afresh of stone. Above all, it was in the Roman time, and by means of Roman ships, that the Christian religion was first brought into Britain, and its people first taught the great lesson that, to be good in the sight of God, they must love their neighbours as themselves, and do unto others as they would be done by. The Druids declared that it was very wicked to believe in any such things, and cursed all the people who did believe it very heartily. But 
when the people found that they were none the better for the blessings of the Druids and none the worse for the curses of the Druids, but that the sun shone and the rain fell without consulting the Druids at all, they began to think that the Druids were mere men and that it signified very little whether they cursed or blessed. After which, the pupils of the Druids fell off greatly in numbers and the Druids took to other trades. Thus, I have come to the end of the Roman time in England. It is but little that is known of those 500 years, but some remains of them are still found. Often, when labourers are digging up the ground to make foundations for houses or churches, they light on rusty money that once belonged to the Romans. Fragments of plates from which they ate, of goblets from which they drank, and of pavement on which they trod, are discovered among the earth that is broken by the plough, or the dust that is crumbled by the gardener's spade. Wells that the Romans sunk still yield water. Roads that the Romans made form part of our highways. In some old battlefields, British spearheads and Roman armour have been found mingled together in decay as they fell in the thick pressure of the fight. Traces of Roman camps overgrown with grass and of mounds that are the burial sites of heaps of Britons are to be seen in almost all parts of the country. Across the bleak moors of Northumberland, the walls of Severus, overrun with moss and weeds, still stretches a strong ruin, and the shepherds and their dogs lie sleeping on it in the summer weather. On Salisbury Plain, Stonehenge still stands, a monument of the earlier time when the Roman name was unknown in Britain, and when the Druids with the best magic wands, could not have written it in the sands of the wild seashore. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.